Hey, welcome to the Church on Boulevard Sermons Podcast, an extension of the ministry of Church on Boulevard in Richmond, Virginia. We hope that you'll find your time meaningful and that you'll learn to live life to the fullest as we grow together. All right, we're looking at Galatians chapter one. These are the first five verses of Paul's letter to the Galatians. It says this, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters who are with us to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. So a couple of years ago, my wife and I had to get our title redone for one of our vehicles. And we had to go to the DMV to do it. We could not get it done online. I mean, we, we tried everything to not have to go in person to the TMV. Didn't want to wait in the lines, didn't want to deal with uh, all of the government red tape and things that, you know, you have to abide by at the DMV. We thought we could circumvent it, but we couldn't get out of it. This was a process that had to be done in person. So I told my wife I would take one for the team <laughs> and go and get our title redone in person. And I decided the day before I'm going to get there super early. Like I'm going to get there 30 minutes before the DMV opens because I want to be the first one in the door. I want to get my day rolling. I showed up the next morning. I was the second person in the parking lot. I got out of my car and stood right next to the front door at the DMV. I was 30 minutes before they were going to open. And uh, sure enough, people started flowing in. I don't know if you know this or not, but at least at our DMV, a line starts forming before they open most days because apparently I'm not the only person that <laughs> thinks this way and wants to get in there quickly and uh, before everybody else gets there. Well, a line of about 15, 20 people formed behind me while we were waiting right next to the front door of the DMV over the, you know, 20, 30 minutes as I was waiting for them to open. And right before it was time for them to open, a man walked out of the front door and he locked the door behind him and he was carrying a flag that was folded up. It was a county flag uh, for our county. And he walked across the parking lot and he had this sort of way of uh, unfolding the flag, holding it up so it didn't touch the ground clipping it a certain way, and then he raised the flag all the way up to the top of the mast. Now, there were three flagpoles out there, and he went inside to get another flag and come back out and did the same process and did it again a third time to get another flag and bring it out. Eventually, he raised all three flags, except one of them went to half-mast. And I noticed we had the county flag, the state flag, and the national flag, the American flag the state flag was at half masts because a political official had uh, died and you put the flag at half masts to honor their life, to grieve together. 
And I thought about it. I thought this man is more in touch with what's going on in society around me, both locally, statewide, and then in the nation. He's probably more in touch with what's going on than even I am. Because every morning he would have to come into work and he'd have to get his marching orders as to like whether the flags are at half mast or full mast or whatever the terms are. Is it going halfway up or all the way up? And he would know what had happened. He would then go and he would do this procedure, whether he felt good about it or not, no matter what he felt, this was his job. And I thought that forms you over time. If you're handling a flag with care, you're essentially submitting to the government that that flag represents. You're submitting to the kingdom represented by that flag. And by just unfolding it and making sure it doesn't touch the ground, you're honoring it. It's like a sacred process. But not only that, it connects you with all of humanity, or at least the people that are underneath the flags, the same flags. So for example, this guy drives around after work and I don't know if he was actually wired this way, but he feels a sense of connection because he has raised these flags every morning and he is knowledgeable about what's going on in society more than the average person that's driving their car. If he drives by another building and he knew that the county flag was supposed to be flown at half mast that day, for example, and he sees a county flag that's not at half mast, he's going to know that somebody didn't get the memo. Like somebody doesn't know what's going on. Or he drives around and he sees all the other flags and he's going to notice them because it's his job. It's his, it's his work. It's what he does. Here's the point. We all raise a flag in our hearts every day. We all give our allegiance to some kingdom every day. And last week we talked about freedom in the Bible. According to uh, Paul and the scriptures, freedom is not being outside of the kingdom. Freedom is not, in other words, being free from any constraints, any government rule, having no authorities over you. All of us have to live under some type of authority. Freedom, according to the Bible, is choosing the right authority so that we can live the best human life we could possibly live and be connected with God so that we can live a flourishing life. In other words, you could say it this way. Freedom is not the absence of all constraints, according to scripture. It is the strategic choice of the right constraints that lead to our flourishing. Every single one of us every day raises a flag in our heart. Maybe you raise the flag to your job. If you raise the flag to your job in the morning, that means that you are giving your primary allegiance to your career. And if you give your primary allegiance to your career and your boss doesn't treat you well that day, that doesn't just upset you, it could crush you. When things are going well in your work, you feel great, but you always feel a little bit on edge or anxious. Do you feel anxious about your work? That like, if you step out of line, your boss could just fire you or maybe worse, ignore you. 
all kingdoms outside of the kingdom of God are based on our performance. Therefore, we never quite feel safe in any kingdom other than the kingdom of God. According to scripture, the primary flag that we are to wave in our life is the flag of Jesus Christ and his gospel. And when we do that, we are actually raising, giving our allegiance at its ultimate point to a God who died for us, who died for the world. And that means that we're actually free to love other people because it's the only flag that will raise all the way to the top that allows, that tells us, that literally pledging allegiance to that flag puts constraints on our life that tell us that we need to love others sacrificially. That's the uniqueness of the Christian gospel. What I'm trying to get us to see is that when we go into the book of Galatians, there are political undercurrents to everything that we're reading about Jesus being Lord, about Jesus uh, being King, about our freedom. And what Paul wants us to see is that when we live in the gospel, we are choosing true freedom. And that means that we're living as if what we believe is really real. Have you ever seen or encountered Christians who, you know, they go to church, but church is kind of relegated to one sphere of their life. When they show up at church, they're all put together. They behave properly. They're, they follow all the, you know, moral claims of Christianity, but in their personal life, you know, they're hypocrites. They're hypocritical. They like, they do their own thing. They don't actually bring their faith into their everyday life. This is why I think a lot of people end up leaving the church because they don't see it as having any power in our day-to-day life. But that's not what we see in the book of Galatians. We don't see a gospel that has no uh, say and sway over our lives. We see a gospel that every single detail of our lives falls under. And it falls under a gospel of grace and peace. This is what Paul is getting us to see, that we who follow the gospel are actually a kingdom of free people. So we're going to look at this, uh, these five verses in Galatians, just the beginning of the letter. We're going to see that it's packed with incredible, incredible power. And we're going to see that under three headings of the gospel. We're going to talk about the government of the gospel as Paul lays it out. We're going to talk about the grounding of the gospel. And then we're going to talk about the glory in the gospel, the government of the gospel, the grounding for the gospel and the glory of the gospel. So let's look into this. The government of the gospel. Who's in charge of your life? Whose kingdom are you really living in? Whose kingdom? Who has the most say and sway in your life. For the Galatians, Caesar had the most say and sway. They would say, Caesar is Lord, Curios. Caesar is divine. He's the son of God. They would give their lives to Caesar. And Rome was a pagan culture. Galatia was part of the Roman empire. And in a pagan society back then, 
you could only get a leg up in the world by worshiping all the pagan gods. All of the major political banquets, the areas where you would meet the who's who of society, where you would get your jobs and network and have influence, you had to sacrifice and worship to the gods. So this is a challenge for Paul, who was a Jew that believed the Jewish Messiah had come in Jesus because Jews believed there was only one true God. And within the pagan society of Rome, Jews were actually given an exemption. Caesar, uh, Julius Caesar, back in the day, years before Paul is writing, set up this Jewish exemption in the kingdom of Rome. He was very pragmatic and he thought, instead of squelching the Jewish religion, I will allow them to only worship their one God. In other words, they don't have to worship all the pagan gods as everyone else in society does. And we will protect them from harm. No one can persecute them because of that. However, however, they have to do two things. They have to continue to pay taxes and abide by all the Roman rules and laws. And I want them to pray to their God for Rome and for the Roman gods. And this was the understanding. So when Paul, who was a Jew, starts to say, hey, uh, there's the Messiah has come in Jesus and we now yield our lives to him. Well, then Jews would fall under the government of King Jesus and no longer capitulate to all the Roman rules, but also, also they didn't have to get circumcised, which was a primary Jewish custom for men. Why? Because circumcision wasn't what saved you. According to Paul, believing in Jesus is what saved you. And so there was a tension between uh, the Jewish Christians, we'll call them. They weren't really called Christians at the time, but but the, the group that was growing out of Judaism that believed in Jesus, there was a tension between them and the Jews. But there was also a tension, a larger tension that was political between the Jews and Rome. The reason the Jews didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah was because they believed that Israel was going to take over the world when the Messiah came. Israel was going to rise to political power. Rome would be overthrown. And since Rome hadn't been overthrown, Jesus couldn't have been the Messiah because Jesus died on a cross, the most shameful death possible for a Roman citizen. In fact, you weren't even considered a citizen anymore once you were uh, crucified. And so they couldn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And Paul is saying, wait a second, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised one that does give us liberation from Roman rule, but he does it in the invisible realities of life. One day, Jesus will come again and overthrow all the earthly governments and we will live under his grace and peace. In the meantime, we live in this sort of in-between state. A lot of like tension in this state. We live in this place where Jesus has already come and he's already liberated us, but he's done it on a spiritual level. And so we still feel all of the political tensions around us, the tensions of people wanting to bow to Caesar's rule, which Christians wouldn't do because Christians worshiped Christ. But also all of the uh, Jewish regulations that were supposed to protect the nation of Israel, Christians didn't have to observe that because they believed the Messiah had already come. 
So this was a challenge. And Paul is writing within that and he writes this letter. And I wanted to give that context to help us see that what Paul is introducing here, the language all over these five verses in the opening of uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians, it's fraught with kingdom language. In other words, Paul is saying there's a truer government that we follow. It's not that we don't honor Roman society. It's not that we don't honor Judaism. They just aren't the flag that we raise the highest in our life. We put the flag of Jesus Christ and his gospel highest, and that is the government we live under. The word gospel means good news. It's not in the actual verses that we have here in our text today, but Paul brings the word up all the time in the book of Galatians. And what we see in these opening verses is the structure, the logic, the layout of the gospel. We see the government of the gospel. The gospel is good news. That's what the word actually means, euangelion. Um, you being good, like you stress, like good stress. Um, euangelion, angelion was, uh, angelos was news. It's good news. And this is important to recognize. Paul was not giving people good advice. He wasn't going to the Jews and saying, hey, Jesus tells us how to live a good moral life so we can go to heaven. He was saying, there's good news. In uh, Roman society at the time, whenever Caesar would conquer new land, he would come back in and send a messenger ahead of him who would proclaim good news, the gospel of Caesar. Rome's empire has just grown. This is good news for everybody who's a Roman citizen because we now have more territory and more people that we're in charge of. We have grown. We've gotten bigger and stronger. We're taking over the world. And this was a political term at the time. It was kingdom language. It was saying our kingdom has expanded. Good news of Caesar Augustus would be proclaimed at the time. But Paul proclaims good news of Jesus Christ. As we're going to see in a minute, that has a lot of implications. But let's just sit with this word good news for a second and look at it in its historical context. Caesar, when he would come in from the battlefield, he would send a messenger in front of him who had all of Caesar's authority and would carry the message of Caesar's gospel, the good news that he had conquered land. And then they would march in oftentimes with the people that they had just conquered or representatives of those people, usually their leaders in chains in front of the people of Rome, sometimes slaughter an animal, sometimes kill those people right in front of everyone else just to show their power and might. The gospel of Caesar was where Caesar had say and sway. He was the ruler and the one who reigned over the empire of Rome. Now, the apostle was that messenger who would run ahead of him and give the good news. Apostle means sent one. And that's what Paul starts with here. He says, Paul, an apostle. An apostle, that means that Paul was a sent one. He was the one carrying a message. He was a herald of the king, but his king was Jesus Christ. The message that he was carrying was the gospel of Jesus. All right, so let me read a couple other verses in this text that we're looking at. And I wanna play a game. Where have you heard this before? Uh, verse three through five goes like this. Grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Did you pick up on it? It's a little bit hidden. 
Let me see if I can uh, draw out uh, a few of these words in here. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for our sins. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, who delivered us from the evil age and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil according to the will of God, the father to whom be the glory forever. (laughs) For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Paul seems to be echoing the Lord's prayer that Jesus gives in Matthew, which is echoing Psalm 23, where it says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me your rod and your staff, your rod that represents your judgment as king over the world and your staff that represents that you're a good shepherd who loves us. They comfort me. They're with me. I will fear no evil. Paul is saying that because of Jesus Christ, the Christian lives under a government rule that's an invisible reality, but it's so real that the Christian no longer has to fear any earthly evil. They're free from it. It's political language. (laughs) All of this is kingdom language that Paul's using here. What's God's kingdom? It's where Jesus Christ has say and sway. So let me ask you the question again. What kingdom do you live in? What's the realest thing that you're living for? I think a lot of us live as if Jesus has no say and sway over the details of our life. He maybe has say or sway when someone has cancer and we want to talk to God about it or when we feel like we have a big project coming up. But what Paul is describing here is something way more massive, something that has way deeper implications. Here's the implications of what Paul is saying. He is saying that Jesus is Lord. Notice he calls him Lord Jesus. That word kyrios was usually used towards Caesar and other political leaders, the ones who actually determined how your day went. Like, like if you didn't obey Caesar and pay your taxes, you had a bad day. (laughs) You were going to jail. But Paul says, actually, the greater authority than Caesar, he's not saying don't pay your taxes. He's saying pay your taxes to Caesar. But Caesar doesn't control your life. In other words, if if things go wrong in in the empire of Rome, your life will not fall apart because you are actually a citizen of heaven you are actually a kingdom person who is free from all the evils that are out there. Now there's a tension to that because it hasn't happened completely in the world that we live in right now, but it has been inaugurated by Jesus. And so that means it's an invisible reality. The implication of Lord Jesus would look like this for us today. When we feel the tension of the wars and the political climate around us, we don't allow it to crush us entirely. We pray for the people. We do what we can to lend acts of service to help support um, our nation and other people who are struggling. But we ultimately obey Jesus and he has promised to protect us. And this alleviates a lot of anxiety. It's also countercultural. 
This is countercultural because if we actually live as if Jesus is Lord, we're going to make decisions in our life that are different than other people. Not because Jesus will save us for those things. That's what Paul is trying to get across. He's saying, you'll just live differently because this is the kingdom that's real. So you will live as if what Jesus says is real, as if the things that he tells you to do are the types of constraints that are going to make your life the best it could possibly be. So you will do the things Jesus tells you to do, like love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. You will go into work and you will honor the people around you, but you don't obey them. You honor people. You don't obey people. You honor people because Christ has gone first and he has freed you. His salvation means that you no longer have to serve earthly masters. You can now be the type of person that is free to go into work and to be a kingdom representative, to love other people on behalf of Jesus Christ, because he's placed you where you are. This gives you incredible purpose, but it also makes you countercultural. Because if Jesus laid down his life, then you're going to lay down yours. And that's not the way the world normally operates. And it's going to catch people off guard. Some people, it's going to excite them. Other people, they might see you laying down your life at work and think that you're just not a respectable person. You don't care enough about yourself. This is the challenge of following Jesus in this way. Another thing that we see is this means we submit all things to Jesus. If his rule and reign is what is most real, then it means that when we say we believe that Jesus takes care of us, we actually give him all the details of our life. Not just the big moments, but the small moments matter. So when we're struggling with a relationship conundrum or when we have a challenge at work, do we see Jesus as Lord over those areas? Do you go into work and say, I serve and honor my boss because I'm so loved by Jesus. My boss doesn't dictate my worth. Jesus does. And therefore I'm freed up to actually support my boss, to do my job. But if my boss is having a bad day and takes it out on me today, it's going to hurt, but it's not going to ruin me. Do you live that way? Do you submit every moment? Do you walk in and say, you know what? We have this big project to do at work today. And Lord, I submit it to you before I do a single thing. May you guide the way that this goes. When you are making a decision about your kids, do you pause and consider that God, Jesus is Lord over your children too? And that he oversees your family. And so you give your family to him. When you're making personal decisions about what movies you're going to watch or even the small stuff, do you recognize that Jesus is Lord over your life? That he wants you to live in true freedom? And do you just yield that to him? Ultimately, what we see is that the gospel, the government of the gospel will ground us in something, an invisible infrastructure that the Bible says is more real than the governments around us. So let's look at point number two. Point number one is the government of the gospel means that Jesus is in charge of every detail of our life. He's the greatest authority. It doesn't mean we don't care about anything else. It doesn't mean we don't honor the laws around us. It means we do them because we first look to Jesus 
and we see Jesus was a servant for all. And therefore, out of gratitude to Jesus, we now have a motivating power to go serve others. We do things with a different motivation. It's countercultural, it's submission to Jesus, but it's ultimately the freedom for what, what liberates us to live a good life. But, but why can we trust it? Like, why, why should we trust this? <laughs> Paul shows us in the next couple of verses why there's a grounding for the gospel, why we can trust it, why we can trust putting Jesus as the ultimate authority of our life. Here's what we see. We see that the gospel of Jesus is grounded in Paul's authority. Notice that in verse one, Paul says, I'm an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God, the father. What's he saying there? Paul's saying that I'm carrying the good news, not of Caesar who would give me authority, but over a greater authority than Caesar. I'm carrying God's words. Now, this is <laughs> this is challenging in our cultural moment because what Paul is claiming here is pretty crazy. He's saying that what you read in this text is inspired by Jesus. These are Jesus's words, not mine. That is unbelievable because it doesn't mean that uh, Paul is speaking to us as just another normal man. Like, we don't read Paul's words here and say, oh, okay, well, Paul said that, but that's kind of Paul's opinion. He's saying, no, 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 this is how God says things are. Wow, that's bold. All right, so hold that for a second. If you're feeling tension, we're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna feel a little bit more and then we're gonna try to work through this together. All right, so here's the, here's the next thing that we see, that there's an objective grounding for Paul's authority, that there's an objective grounding for the gospel. And here's what it is. God and Jesus. <laughs> Wait, what? God created all. What Paul is saying is my authority and your authority when you receive this, when you read these words and you live into them, you live into the gospel of Jesus that is not just something that Paul believes or thinks or feels good. You're living into what the God of the universe, the creator of all says is the right way to live in order to be truly free, to flourish. That means that there's an objective grounding for what Paul is saying. Now, I want to pause for a second because this is where we will really push back. I want to, I want to connect with those of you who are deconstructing your faith right now, who are saying, wait a second, I grew up in a church that said all of the things you're saying, Drew, and they used it to hurt people. They used it to basically make sure that I stayed within all the moral boxes that they built for me. And it actually didn't feel like freedom at all. It felt oppressive. Okay. I hear that. I get that. And I think there's been a lot of hurt done in the church by saying that the gospel is based on objective reality. A lot of us don't believe in objective truth anymore. Uh, in a postmodern culture, we say truth is whatever you make it. But even though it may be valid, that we all have subjective experiences of life. I want to argue that we can actually trust the gospel because the Bible, while challenging and sometimes challenging to understand, has validity and grounding in objective reality. 
So here's the thing. Let me do this by, instead of going super far into this question, let me just pose a question that a lot of people ask me when it comes to the Bible. They'll say, okay, Drew, I'll concede. The Bible is the inspired word of God. But even if I concede that, even if I get there and say, okay, there's some sort of objective reality out there. How do I know that I'm interpreting it rightly? Like, how can, how can I trust my interpretation versus your interpretation, Drew, versus somebody else's? That's valid. It is challenging sometimes to interpret the Bible, but I want to help you out if you're struggling with this right now. There's a logical flaw to this question. The first is this. The question is an objective statement. To say that no one can interpret the Bible rightly and therefore like we just can't trust what anybody says, so we should just live as we want to live anyways and and you know, well, we can't really trust our interpretation of scripture. So I can't really put the teachings of Jesus into practice. I might believe he existed. I might even believe the Bible is, uh, is a powerful presence in the world. And, um, but I also think that about the Quran and I also think that about other, uh, sacred texts. Here's why that's a problem. That is an objective statement. In other words, your interpretation of scripture is that you cannot understand your interpretation of scripture. All right, do you get that? The logical flaw to saying, wait, maybe scripture is objective, but we can't understand it. We can't interpret it. Then what you're saying is when you read the Bible, you just assume that you can't understand any of it. Do you actually live that way? So so first, there's a logical flaw to even poking that question, probing that question, because uh, if you mean it sincerely, then you have to recognize that that's an objective statement. You are saying something about interpretation when you say that. But secondly, and I was just kind of leaning into this, there's an experiential flaw because none of us actually live like we don't trust our interpretations. We trust our interpretations all the time. In the book of Matthew, Jesus is having a conversation with someone who comes against him who makes this exact argument. They say, you know, Jesus, you're great, but how can we actually trust that you're authoritative? How can we actually trust that you have objective truth in reality? And Jesus responds in a very interesting way. He says, you're a fisherman. You go out into the sea, don't you? You can't understand the things that I'm saying, but but you sail every day and you say in the morning, if the sky is red... <laughs> Then, oh, what is it? Uh, red in the morning, sailor's warning. Red at night, sailor's delight. Jesus says to him, you interpret the skies all the time. You don't go fishing today <laughs> if the sky is red in the morning. And if it's red at night, you say, let's go, boys. Let's get out there. Let's get out on the water because you trust it. In other words, every human lives according to interpretations of all sorts of things. It's not experientially honoring to say we can't trust any interpretation of the Bible. You can't trust your interpretation of the Bible because even though some areas of the Bible are challenging and we do have to understand the historical context, the original language, different things like that, there's plenty of the Bible that makes perfect sense. Like God so loved the world. We might quibble over what love means, but God so loved the world we at least know that this God loves the world. He doesn't hate the world. In other words, we can honor our interpretation and we do it all the time. I know I'm not necessarily providing a total solution here, but let me, let me just provide a little bit of a response to how we might move 
forward. Here's a thought that might help you if you're struggling with this area of objective understanding of the gospel. Consider that you can understand and interpret the Bible truly without understanding it fully. You can understand and interpret the Bible truly without having to understand it fully. So yeah, the the largest level of interpretation, what God knows, we might not be able to understand what God knows because we're not God. But we can understand part of it truly and we can live by that. For example, you might go to be a police officer and you're given a a handbook of all sorts of codes and rules and regulations of how to be a police officer. You haven't lived as a police officer for decades or years, but you trust the tradition of other police officers. You trust what the academy tells you and you trust your interpretation of the handbook. You have a general sense of what it means to be a police officer and you're going to live into that interpretation. And over time, you're going to get some things wrong and you're going to say, oop, I misunderstood that part of the handbook. I need to recorrect, course correct. But ultimately, you're going to trust your interpretation to at least be valid to the extent that you understand. And if that's the case, then you can trust your interpretations. So that's not necessarily an answer to all the texts in the Bible, but I do think what Paul is laying out here is he's saying, look, the creator God handed me this message. You can trust it and and disregard the fact that there's no such thing as objective truth because that in itself is an objective statement. There is an objective grounding to reality according to scripture. And some of us have tension with that, but Paul is trying to help us see that it's actually extremely freeing. Here's another reason why the objective grounding matters. Look with me at verse, um, let's see, oh, two or one, second half of verse one. This comes through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. Paul is saying there's not just an objective theoretical grounding for this. There's a flesh and blood person, a historical reality that I can point to. This letter was likely written around 48 AD. When was Jesus crucified? sometime between, let's call it 27 and 33 AD. 15 years ago, I was in high school. I can remember high school very clearly. I can remember big events. If someone were to die and rise from the dead 15 years ago, I would remember it. (laughs) There were eyewitnesses of Jesus's resurrection. And Paul is saying, hey, even if you don't trust your interpretation of scripture, even if you don't trust my words, this is not rooted in me. The gospel that we live into is rooted in Jesus Christ and Jesus did something that historically happened and he rose from the dead and we worship him because of that. Wow. Wow. What he's trying to say is you can validate my claims. You can go see if they're credible. Paul puts himself out there completely. So there's objective, uh, it's grounded in objective reality because there's a truth claim that the authority of Paul, the messenger is coming directly from God. There's historical grounding that Jesus was raised from the dead and that can be uh, either proven or disproven. But then there's also a radical subjective reality. Notice that Paul says it's Lord Jesus Christ. Lord meaning kurios, meaning he is the 
he is the ruler of all. Christ meaning Messiah, meaning he's the ruler of the Jews. But Jesus, Jesus, that's a personal name. A Christian doesn't have to choose between subjective reality and objective reality. A Christian should always experience immeasurable amounts of both. They both come together. The objective grounding of the scripture will be validated in experience. If your experiences never line up with scripture, then you're probably interpreting it wrong. If your <laughs> interpretation of, if your experiences always deviate from scripture or in major ways deviate from scripture and tradition, then maybe you are doing something wrong. But bottom line is the subjective and the objective come together in Jesus. And that's what we see is the grounding of the gospel we live in a world where we say there is no such thing as objectivity. There's only subjective grounding. And that means we live on top of quicksand. Our world is always sliding and moving. This is why we can't ever have really great political discussions, in my opinion, because every time we get talking, people can always shut you down by just saying, well, that's what you think, and then leave. Whereas the Bible doesn't give us that out. We have to wrestle with it. We have to say there's an objective truth here and my experience isn't lining up. So that means one of two things, either my interpretation is wrong or I'm doing, I'm acting and behaving contrary to scripture, but it can't mean that my experience doesn't matter. And so I just take the Bible literally and I just do everything it says. And it doesn't matter if my life if I never connect with God. No, the Christian has to have an experience of Jesus. We have to know the Holy Spirit. And that is very, very profound because there's no other philosophy or religion that claims that God came to earth as a person and allows for objective and subjective reality to be met in one person that we can also encounter here and now and live in here and now. So the second point, the grounding of the gospel, why we can trust this gospel is that there's authority um, in the text of scripture. There's an objective reality that it's all built on. There's a historical reality of Jesus being raised from the dead that we can uh, go and explore. And our subjective experience is utterly important, utterly important. The government of the gospel, Jesus is in charge of every area of life, even uh, your work, your job, uh, your finances, your sex life, whatever it might be, everything Jesus is Lord of. Why can you trust it? Because there's objective reality behind it, because there's scripture that tells you, because Jesus actually came to earth and he lived and died and rose again, and because you can experience him here and now subjectively in a powerful, profound way. And here we get to the last point of this message. It's kind of, <laughs> I'm kind of realizing if you've been sticking with me for this long, um, I, I gave this same message and like, I was proud of myself. I, I think it was like 25, 30 minutes this past weekend and I'm going long here. And so I am so sorry. <laughs> I'm still learning how to like preach in this format, but, um, I want to take us into this last point and it's really, really important. So if you got to pause it, because <laughs> it's been going on for a while, pause it, but come back. This is where we see the glory in the gospel. So we see the government of the gospel, the grounding for the gospel, but the glory in the gospel. How is Christian freedom utterly unique? Where's the power in it, according to Paul? Well, let's look at verse four. We're right at the end of our passage. Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us 
that word is to liberate us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, it says this, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul is saying that I boast in the glory of God alone. No other way than God's glory. And what's the greatest glory of God? Where do we see it displayed the most? He says in the cross, and this is crucial for the Christian's understanding. (laughs) If the cross is the place of Jesus's preeminent glory and our lives are lived under Jesus entirely as kingdom people, then that means that the way to glory is to give up glory. The way to get to the greatest glory in your life is to give up your glory. Now, what does the word glory mean? Glory means weight. It means a weightiness to life. It it, it means like when you're most fully alive, you see a child in all their glory when they're singing and dancing on stage at uh, their school's performance and they are just in their element and their talent is coming out and their joy is coming out. That's all of their glory, There's a weightiness to it. You feel like those moments are sacred when you see someone in all of their glory. We often live our lives trying to get glory by grasping for it. But Jesus died on a cross, which was actually the greatest shame. And it shows us that in his moment of greatest glory when he was up on the cross was also a moment of great shame. In other words, When Jesus lays down his glory, that is when he is most glorified on the cross. This paradox is vital because I think so many of us think that to be glorified with God, the glory of the gospel is something in heaven or something that happens after the cross. That's the resurrected Jesus. That's the power and all the blessings that we'll experience. And we see that through a lens of how our world says we are to be blessed. Money, cars, financial freedom, uh, political rule. But Paul is saying those things are actually beside the point. The greatest glory you could ever have is to know Christ crucified. His greatest moment of shame was his crowning achievement of glory. And that means you now have the power to do the same. You will grow in glory when you lay glory down. What does this look like? Let's go all the way back to the opening illustration. If the flag of King Jesus is the one that you pledge allegiance to in your heart at the beginning of every day or throughout the day, if that goes highest in your life, then think about this. You will get glory by laying glory down, which means you will be able to experience true love. Why? (laughs) Why does that work? If the flag that you fly the highest is your career, then you're going to do whatever you can to get glory by gaining glory through your career. And that means even when you help someone else out, you're not free to help them because you love them. You're constrained by your own desires. You will only help them insofar as it helps you. 
That's not actual love. In other words, if your highest flag that you fly is family, then maybe you've had this experience where your children embarrass you in public and they get, uh, maybe they, they, they stumble and fall and they're freaking out. Now, moms usually run right to the scene, but I've had this experience as a dad, full confession, where I've, before running to my child to help them, I've looked around to see if anybody sees what's going on so that they don't look at me weird. So I don't cause a scene. In other words, I care more in that moment about myself than my child. Why? Because I care what people socially think of me. When the flag that I fly the highest is my family, then anything that they do to disrupt the status quo is going to be a reflection on me. And therefore, every time I go to serve them, I'm actually doing it to help raise my flag higher. I'm actually loving them for myself. But Christ on the cross in his greatest moment of glory laid all of his glory down. He died and was crucified. And that means that we now have that power. Does that excite you? Do you want that? Do you want to be the type of person who can lay down their life for other people, who can give to other people without needing something in return? who can be free of anxiety because you can serve and honor your boss at work, but you don't have to obey them. They're not your master. Do you want that kind of freedom? This is the place that I think the gospel invites us into. And it's good news because it means that we are free to glorify others. And that means we're free to actually love we're free to actually serve other people and not just serve our own desires, our own wishes. Let's get free together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as we live in this world, there is a government, a kingdom that is greater than the kingdoms of this world. We thank you that there's a grounding for that in Jesus Christ. And we thank you that when he went to that cross, he showed us what true glory looks like in self-sacrificial love. And now we have the power to do the same and we can encourage one another and actually be free to care for one another, to give and receive love because of what Jesus has done for us. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Church on Boulevard Sermons podcast. You can find out more about Church on Boulevard by going to www.churchonblvd.com.